everybody. It's Jean Nathan. I hope you all can hear me. I have a buddy in the in the <laughs> engineering room now making things happen. But um, this is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, we are here to talk about a wonderful event coming up this weekend, some really interesting artists that are part of it. Um, but here we are at a moment when, uh, as I left my house and I was watching the Weather Channel, um, uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands again um, are being just obliterated by this horrible storm. And um, of course, there are some people who still think there's no climate change. I mean, I have friends who I respect and love who are of that opinion, and it just floors me. But yeah, there's there's problems out there in in um, in the Caribbean, and you know that's kind of in a way a funny way to open the program because ultimately we're going to be talking about this wonderful event that's happening this coming um, sa- uh, Sunday um, that the Faulkner Society is putting on, and the Faulkner Society folks they are the literary mavens of the city. They really work hard on trying to help um, uh, the city uh, promote and support its writers. And I'm I'm very fond of of what they've been doing. And Rosemary James, who works her behind off for it, and they do it with, as we all do in New Orleans, very limited resources. So we're here to try to make sure everybody knows about their um, events this weekend. And so um, we're talking about... Um, uh, happy birthday, William Faulkner. It happens to be William Faulkner's birthday. And um, juleps, mint juleps are a part of the program this time because sometimes that happens during the summer, but this time the events have been combined. So it's going to be a great weekend on uh, coming up, and most of the uh, events will happen at midday on Sunday through the end of the day. And my two guests, uh, Michael Arada, uh, famed actor and producer, <laughs> and Ann Gisselson, who is a writer supreme, and Michelle Varisco, who is one of my most favorite artists in the city because not only is her work beautiful, but she is so focused on the environment, which is a big part of the story that um, we focus on telling um, in this radio show on a weekly basis. So um, I'm, I'm happy to have all of these folks here. But I guess I'm going to open because of what's happening in the Caribbean. With one of Anne's works, so Anne is an author, and she writes all kinds of things, and I'll let her fill in the blanks on that. But one of the things that she has written, um, which I just found out she didn't get paid a whole lot on, and she should really get a lot more for this, because it's one of the best guides I have ever read for how to deal with anything. And in this case, it is about how to prepare for, deal with, and then afterwards deal with disasters. And God knows, I think almost everybody in every city on earth needs to, and forget just city and rural areas, needs to have this book. This happens to be called How to Rebuild a City. It's a field guide from a work in progress, and I think it's still available at the Antenna Gallery on St. Claude Avenue. Um, but I'm recommending to Anne that this needs to be reprinted by somebody like How to Prepare for Disasters for Dummies, or you know, that can get it out to many more people because it's so sensitive, insightful, comprehensive. And I mean, 
ev- from everything about how to you know deal with the preparation of your home and your computer and your files before you leave the house, how to understand what's going on, kind of how to to help your children understand how to deal with it, how to, you know, just the, the simple tools and, and supplies that you're going to need to both deal with preparation of your house and also what to do afterwards. I mean, everybody in the city of New Orleans should have this book for sure. We should benefit from the fact that it was written here and it actually talks a lot about uh, many of the groups that work. It is it is meant to be a how-to for the individual at home, but also for individuals and organizations and others in helping their neighborhoods and their city. Having said all that, I don't know what I left for Anne to say about it, but Anne, why did you do this and tell me about how you prepared this because it is so deep and so comprehensive. I'm really curious about it. And let's hear. Sure. Well, the first thing I have to say is that it was very much um, a collaboration. It wasn't just me. I was not the sole writer um, by any stretch. There were two other editors. Um, Tristan Thompson um, was my co-editor, and the director and artistic designer um, was Catherine Burke. And we were basically um, just kind of stewards of the project. We did write some of the copy, but there were roughly, I'd say, 100 individuals and Oh, wow. organizations that contributed in some way, shape, or form to making wow. this. Wow. Which was, that's why it was so shocking when it when the book came from the printer and it was so thin. It, it just <laughs> felt like this epic thing that we, we've been working on Well, it, it's thin because the 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 uh, print is, is not huge. And, um, I, you know, you, there's no sense of thinness when you look into it. The minute you open it up and read a single page, there's nothing thin about this book. This is so full of information. It's it's just it's truly amazing. But let's go back to how you put this together. So there were a lot of people involved. A lot of people wrote parts of it. Um, but how did you kind of frame the whole thing? How did you really figure out how to um, uh, structure the contents? That took a lot. And actually, we did do a lot of the work at Colton School. And we were in one of those um, wonderful classrooms with a huge uh, blackboard. And it took a lot of organizing. We had, we had tons of post-its. We had tons of index cards. We had so much information. We knew we needed um, a structure, like a really, really tight structure, in order to get all the information down. And so the field guide seemed to be sort of the best, um, the best structure to come down with. And so that's why we broke it. And then once we decided on a field guide, we had to decide on um, kind of four sections for tacks, um, just to kind of once again. And that's that's so smartly organized too. So it's you and your disaster. So it's really personal. Take matters into your own hands. So really prepping people for the fact that they're going to have to be volunteers. They're going to have to pick up a hammer. They're going to have to work with others. Get organized. Mm-hmm. And that's all about, you know, again, collaborating and working with other organizations. And nourish and flourish, of course. As we all know in New Orleans, that one of the first things that happened that reassured us that we were going to be okay is that the restaurants opened, yeah. Yeah. right? It was, the, it was the beautiful flowering of the flower popping out of the ash after the volcano, right, where you see that beautiful sign of life. And I remember walking down a deserted street, smelling hamburgers cooking on somebody's pit, and realizing it wasn't somebody's pit. It was a restaurant that was open, the only one around. And so uh, I look at something like this, Anne, and I think to myself, like, this is hands-on knowledge that New Orleanians have gotten through hard effort, through a difficult time, 
that we can kind of contribute to the rest of the country. It was one of the great things that we all thought about after the storm. Like, hey, this is a contribution that people in a five years or a decade or two decades will actually be able to contribute more than our incredible culture and our jazz. The knowledge of living through what we lived through in 2005 and kind of you bringing up what the, what's happening in the Caribbean and what happened in Houston, what happened in Miami and all through Florida. Um, I mean, we all remember how devastating that was and how incredibly difficult it was, but also the sense that, hey, listen, we're going to figure out how to do this and do this in a way that we can – something like this evolves from it. It's a beautiful you know, I contribution. Wish, I wish in a way that the mayor of Houston had read this. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't we right. all? I mean, yes. I know. That's I know sad, that all of us true. from New Orleans were watching this guy oh, on, on television best. say, stay home. And I'm saying – Wait a minute. It seems to me that I heard that they're going to have, like, huge historic flooding. Why on earth are you telling people to stay home? I still to this day do not understand how he came to that conclusion. The reason is it's much more dangerous to get on the roads in Texas um, when there's flooding because the, the the dry environment before the rains come can sometimes create insane arroyo kind of, um, well, water can wash cars off the road a whole lot easier in a drier climate. Oh, please, Michelle. He had so much forewarning. No. I just think that's one thing that he probably was contending with that we didn't have here as much. We had a different, we have a different. No, you know what he was dealing with? He was dealing with the mismanagement of the evacuation the last time. They clearly didn't do it right. They didn't have contraflow. And by the way, I watched Florida, and I I didn't see a whole lot of contraflow going on there, too. I mean, these folks are not – here's part of the problem. They're not learning from previous lessons, and that's why I think this book is so important. Because even we, the city of New Orleans, have not put out enough – of a guide to other people for how to deal with stuff. And, and, and this book really does that. But, I, I, you know, I had this discussion with a couple national people because I was really hot about this because I said, oh, my God, there were just thousands of people who were totally misdirected to stay home. Not only that, but after the storm, and this is in my newsletter today. I don't know if you guys get my newsletter, but the waters that those folks were walking through – highly polluted with biological stuff. And, you know, my husband had um, cellulitis and then, uh, um, uh, what do you call it when uh, it gets into your blood? What's that uh, word? And then you can die from it in like 48 hours, in, in 24 hours. And that stuff was in the water and people were coming down with that left and right. Plus, a guy comes home, he walks onto his lawn, and there's little balls of mercury all over the lawn. Mercury out in the water. And so I'm saying the problem is there's no real clear, I don't think, protocol for the leaders of cities and other places for how to make a decision because that's what was in play there. He made a decision based on a bad gridlock evacuation that happened before, but he did not make that decision based on the, what the prognosis for what what's the right word? Not prognosis, the predictions for what was going to happen in Houston. He really did not, um, I think, analyze that uh, correctly. Well, so, well, look at what happened here. I mean, with our mayor at the time, um, all of the buses were all located in the lower town. You know, that was a more, in a way, that was stupid and thoughtless and reflected the fact that the guy in charge, let's see, how can I say this without being too personal? 
let's just say, was kind of an uptown kind of guy who just really wasn't paying close enough attention to what was really going to happen to people in parts of the city who couldn't get out of those parts of the city without rapid transit. But in, in the case in Houston, he had forewarning, and he's advising people to do something that turned out to be the most dangerous thing they could do. It was crazy. This book, How to Rebuild a City, Field Guide from a Work in Progress, this is what needs to be in the hands of leaders and, and citizens of any city. Now, having said that, Anne has written other kinds of books as well. So I just had to get that in because I'm still so hot about what happened in Houston. And Florida, they really, I think they worked a lot harder. The islands, oh, my God, what do you do if you're on an island in the Caribbean? I don't know. You know, you really <laughs> suffer. You yeah. suffer the consequences. Well, you try to get off as best yeah. you can. but If but you can. If you yeah. can, right? Right. So there's going to be um, pretty, uh, there's going to be horror stories coming out of there for yeah. sure. But um, I want to go to the literary, before I got so hot and exacerbated about this, I was really focused on the Faulkner Society as an as an institution, as an organization that works so hard to support and develop the literary traditions in the city. And we, we have as strong a literary community as we do a music community, an art community, an architecture community, a food community. But we don't hear as much about it. So, and I'm going to get into in just a second because we have Michelle Varisco here, the artist with whom you wrote a book. But before I uh, jump into that, I just want to ask you about your perspective and view on the literary community in New Orleans and, and how it's evolving. How did it develop after the storm? Because a lot of, of writing happened after Katrina, and it's still happening. So give me some a writer's perspective on your community. Um. It's been amazing seeing what's happened to the writing community since Katrina. Um, you know, there was a very kind of, there was a, a robust um, kind of cache of post-Katrina literature that happened um, after the storm. There was kind of this very, very immediate reaction to it. And then projects like this that took, you know, kind of more, it took years to sort of, uh, to kind of assimilate information and um, a kind of more nuanced response to it. Um, but frankly, I think, um, Tons and tons of people have moved here. Lots and lots of writers have moved in, particularly from New York. And um, lots more collectives have s started. And I think there's this sense of urgency after the storm, with, especially with, um, with groups like Press Street, which morphed into Antenna, um, where we were holding book readings in places that hadn't even opened yet, Preservation Hall and the Saturn Bar. Before they'd even reopened, we were having events just to get some life back into these areas. And um, and so there was a sense of urgency that, that literature and the way that the city was portrayed in the written word nationally, it was really kind of, um, it was truly an existential question for the city, like how, how the city was portrayed in the press and um, in magazines. Really, it was so important because that it be accurately and sensitive, sensitively done because our survival depended on it, our recovery dollars. That's a we very needed, good point. We needed the goodwill of the country. Right. And, um, and there were, frankly, like this, the How to Rebuild a City book and a lot of stuff I wrote at the time came out of this frustration that um, an accurate picture of the city and what was happening here was, was not getting out there. And I think to this day, I think there's this um, this sort of residual sense of urgency around writing that 
writing is something that really, really matters to a culture and, and a community. Um, but right now, there are so many reading series. There's the, the Dogfish reading series tonight. There's the Blood Jet reading series over at BJ's. That's in like an hour. Michael <laughs> Lee's reading there <laughs> with some others. They're reading series. They're so they're before reading. What are you them, calling them? Reading series. Series. Like, huh? Yeah, reading series. Um, you know, a monthly um, series about you know that happens in a specific location. It's like book clubs. Yeah. Well, oh no, no, like we're a writer will get up in front of people writers. And read. Okay. Yeah, writers. Uh -huh. um, and so, um, yeah. So there's tons now where there's there's really there weren't that many um, before the storm. Now it seems like there's almost this uh, this competitive sense of having like too many poetry readings on one night because there's just tons of literary events all over now. Wow. Um, so I, I had think, no idea. Yeah, it's really it's really an exciting time to be a writer. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you about um, this is a, a question that you know we're all dealing with in so, in all quarters of the city. Tell me about um, the newbies, so-called, mm -hmm. the new arrivals, versus the cultural um, uh, culture bearers of the city who've been here. Uh, how, how is that equation working out in the literary fields? There's a lot of, you know, kind of sensitivity about this in the art world and maybe in the theater world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You'll tell me. But what about uh, with writers? How are you interacting with kind of the, um, the writers who've been here, the, the native writers or the writers who've been here a long time? I think use the word sensitivity, and I, I think that there is um, a lot of sensitivity among people who have arrived, say, in the past five years or so. Um, because a lot of really, really fine, very accomplished writers, especially from New York, tons of writers come down from New York, people um, who were you know, very important on the national scene um, and local and the scene in New York, and then coming down here, I think almost all of them were incredibly sensitive about um, writing about New Orleans and about how to portray New Orleans. One writer um, uh, told me that uh, she thought that she had to earn New Orleans before she could write about it. Good for her. So I think most people have been very, very sensitive about it. Some uh -huh. a little less so, but I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But how, and how do you feel the writers who have been here feel about it? Um, what, what do you hear? Not hear? what do you think, but what, what do you hear? What do I hear? Um, I hear mixed things. I think um, I think that some writers arrived who, since they already had a lot of um, institutional connections to magazines and publishing houses and stuff, they, they already had um, access and already had a, a platform to write about local stories that local writers um, didn't have. And so I think there was some resentment about that, that these other the fancy writers had these contacts, and so they could much more easily pitch stories to big magazines mm -hmm. and get them yeah. accepted, whereas it's way, way more difficult for um, a local writer to do that. So. And have the new writers uh, offered a helping hand, so to speak, oh, and yes. some guidance to the writers here? Yeah, they've been uh -huh. um, extremely generous in that way. Okay. So um, before I turn to Michael and hear uh, sort of the similar questions about the theater community, because the theater community has also seen big changes, and the theater community, I think, has also struggled in New Orleans as compared with um, some others. I've always been astounded, for example, how the dance community has really been neglected. I pick up the New York, I read the New York Times, as mm -hmm. everybody who watches my newsletter knows, because I always include things from there. But they cover dance like crazy. You can't pick up an issue without seeing something about dance. And, and that's not true in New Orleans, where I would think of New Orleans as pretty much in a very important seminal city when it comes to dance, right? Yeah. 
But um, I want to talk for a minute um, with Michelle um, about her work, which is very environmentally uh, related in general. And um, and then Anne worked with her on the copy for a book of her photographs, which really both portray the beauty of nature but also convey the risk and the um, endangered nature of nature. Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, you mentioned Katrina earlier, and that sort of pivoted my focus towards the environment before that. I was doing um, envir uh, just social justice kind of work and photograph photographing all kinds of architectural projects and also individuals and doing portraits around other themes. But when Katrina happened, I shifted gears. And in fact, there was a book that Anne, I think, had a hand in called Intersection. Oh, yeah. After Katrina, where a bunch of artists were paired with writers, and we did a show, and it was the first show on St. Claude that I remember mm -hmm. ever happening on, you know, the, before the, um, the total rebuilding of the, the community and so many changes that happened since. But, um, but with the shifting series, I, I focused entirely on the systems and consequences of engineering and decisions that have been made in the region, in Louisiana, Southeast Louisiana, that have in fact endangered us. Um, and some of that brought me to some horrifying places. Uh, you say beautiful, but I mean, some of the worst times that I've ever photographed were in the oil, uh, photographed in the BP oil spill. Um, and so I, I asked Anne to join me on a couple of those excursions, and, and I really love her soulful voice. I think that she has a way of personalizing and bringing home um, the spirit of whatever's happening and, and using language in a very elegant and efficient and, more importantly, soulful way. So I asked her if she would be interested in doing something she had never done before, which was focus on the environment for a little while. and and just put her brain power in this direction. And she said, yeah, you know, she said, I don't know, I've never written about the environment <laughs> before. And I challenged both of us because I told her I hadn't really photographed the environment before. This was a new direction for my work. And she just, she just grabbed on and did, you know, a beautiful job. And um, we, we produced a book um, called Shifting that was like a catalog kind of for the exhibition I did at the Ogden Museum, but then again it wasn't. Like it was kind of a, the uh, curator Bradley Singwall wrote a wonderful essay in the, in the beginning of the book and, and Anne's work went through the entire book in different sequences that we were looking at when it was, um, uh, I guess, around land building, engineering around land loss, consequences around the pipelines, the tens of thousands of miles of pipelines that, you know, crisscross through the, through the region, the marshes, the salt water. She learned as much as she could within a short amount of time and just uh, wrote essays and poems. And you know, I, I can't help um, but feel and think about um, the general perception of artists by the public that is not engaged in the arts. Think of artists as privileged characters who get to 
enjoy life and 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 play at making art. Isn't that isn't that true? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's true. Well, well, but and, and but at this and at the same time, I've attended two mayoral forums in the past few weeks where the discussion, the questions and the answers were so vapid and so unrelated to any vision, ideas, plans that it was shocking and I think people don't realize that artists in a way it's been true throughout history but I think particularly right now have actually become the leaders in social activism and in concern for how we do things how we live how our cities grow or don't what we do or don't do to and with our environment that I, I, I wish people better understood this. Well, I, I'll say this, you know, I mean, one of the things that artists can do is make a point in a very, and put a very fine point on a point without really having to worry about, you know, political consequences, right? And so one of the things that we're able to do in our lives and with our art, with our shows or with our writings or with our photographs is to express a point of view as unvarnished and as raw as you can possibly make it and there are, all, there are consequences to everything right so there are economic consequences and there are other consequences but that's one of the great joys about having the the luxury of of being able to do what we do is to is to make a point is to say something out loud and then to have public reaction to it and without really you know, standing back and suffering kind of political consequences where others can't necessarily say, we have a crazy president right now who will say the most cockamamie stuff uh, and, and seems to kind of get away with all this crazy stuff. But an artist can stand back and like Michelle would do or Ann will do or I'll do with productions. We can make a really important point made, but it's done in a way that I think uh, would resonate emotionally on a level that, that – that 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 uh, stays with people. But I, but I have to say, you don't have to do that. No. Well, well, no. right? There's, no. there's a lot of different kinds of writing. <laughs> right. What? I'm sorry. I think that there's lots of artists that don't touch touch it with a ten foot pole. Yeah. You know, they stay in another um, arena. But right now, I would have to say, in New Orleans, and this is back to our discussion about what the writers community is like here now, and really, it's the whole creative community. There is a tremendous focus on 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 social and environmental issues. Oh, yeah, but listen, but, you know, I mean, we can talk about it when we get to the theater part, but, you know, Junebug, Junebug Theater, and, I mean, like, the essence of theater that I know and the people who I have kind of come up with in the theater community, it was nothing but social justice issues. It was all about social justice issues. So, uh, so uh, I mean, I And, and I its predecessor, Free Southern Theater. That's correct. One of right. the first... Really, social activism-oriented theaters in, in America. The country. Right, in the country. Right so here that, in New Orleans. I was going to say, that emanated here. That's not an accident, right? Yeah. And so we've always mm. been socially conscious in the theater community, at least. And, and Dog and Pony Theater was an offshoot of that. And that continued through Art people today. And, arts, and I was going to say, so right. So that comes to Kathy and arts, and arts Spot, right? And so I think we're still living in that moment. And, um, and I would say this to Anne's point about people coming into New Orleans, you know, we do have a theater community that existed pre-Katrina, and it existed after Katrina, made of New Orleanians, but it has been infused with energy and ideas from outside of the city that's emboldened and, and enlivened a theater community that was kind of getting a little stale and a little dormant in a lot of ways. I actually may have given the creative community here 
um, yeah, a, a little bit more courage. And energy. Yeah. But it's also been invested in. So like the That's WPA true. project, it focused on investing in the artists and their work, and it became very poli political and, and wonderful in mm -hmm. a way that was very raw and honest. Um, artists didn't have to worry about surviving. I think after Katrina, there was a moment, and there still is this moment in New Orleans where artists that had passed on had foundations like the Joan Mitchell Foundation, the Andy Warhol Foundation, the Krasner. All of these different groups came down here and helped um, fuel the art that was really coming out of us at the time. And I think that also um, sort of started this, um, this group of people coming down to to kind of be part of New Orleans as well. I think there was a kind of, um, yeah, it was, it was a multi-tier kind of, um, not an exodus, an, uh, when you come into a place, uh, whatever. Invasion? But they wanted to touch their toe yeah. into this. I mean, right. I thought we were electrifying at yeah. that time, and I think they yeah, wanted I a piece agree. of this, don't yeah. you think? I do too, because um, I think like a studio in the woods got its grounding then, and a lot of that is motivated around environmental programming. Um, prospect for this year is also going to be, you know, circling around the environment and um, social and environmental justice, which I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of. So I think, um, I think that that has been fueled in part because of investment as well. So I think it's ironic because you wouldn't know that that would be funded, you would think that it would, you'd lose money from doing that, but I think that we've had supporters come from different corners since we don't have the WPA anymore, and I wish we did. Yeah, it, uh, um, not only the WPA, but any kind of real government support for the arts. I was really um, having a discussion earlier today about um, foundations and the extent to which we are dependent on the missions of foundations and corporations and individuals who have their own acts to grind and their own preferences. And, and it, I think that's really one of the most dangerous aspects of the way we fund the arts in America is that um, you, you, don't, you don't get the kind of um, uh, support without strings that would really, um, I think, open things up. On the other hand, I think you're absolutely right about this infusion um, of talent. In addition to this phenomenally strong creative history in the city, let's turn to the theater um, uh, for a, a bit now, and um, let me capture um, the same question. You know, in, we're talking about writers and, and the writers community. Um, give me a little bit of perspective on the theater community and how that's been evolving. And you know, one thing we, we haven't touched on, and it, it's so much at the heart of everything going on in America today, is the phenomenal um, driving force of racism, both negative and positive, and how that is a factor in just about every. Um, aspect of our lives today and how we um, are, are grappling with it or not. And so one of the great things that we've had in the theater community are leaders in the community who've always made a point to express their own lives, their own experiences to the theater community through their works. So going to John O'Neill, the Free Southern Theater, all the way through the, thr the through line that you just brought us up to through Kathy Randall's and Art Spot 
and everybody who's on the stage today. Did you know Gil Moses, by yeah, the way? Yes, I did. And so he was, I knew him before I came to New Orleans. Oh, did you really? Yeah. He yes. actually taught me how to speak. Well, he did a good job. <laughs> and I, I, no, I have a great <laughs> he, story about he did, it. He did very well. I, I hate to You're performing beautifully, by the well, way. Well, I can't. be proud. Well, I, I, I divert for a moment, and I have a terrible habit of doing this, but it's a great little story. So um, he was a friend of one of my roommates when I lived at 12th and 2nd in uh, Lower East Side, and uh, one day I woke up in my bedroom, and, and in the bed across from me was this guy <laughs> who I had never That's seen. That's another diversion, by the way. Who That's I had never seen story. before That's in my life. That's a story. And um, so, you know, um, hi, who are you? Yeah. Hi, who are you? I'm Gil. And then, uh, you know, we're having a little, little bit of breakfast together, and um, he said, you know, I want you to do something. He said, okay, what? Bend over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, now Good talk. Good now he said, now talk. Okay. He said, okay, now keep that same tone and stand up. So instead of talking like this, like a New Yorker from the Bronx who talks like the girls on Saturday Night Live, I learned how to talk at a more normal, and I wish more women on television, by the way, had had that same lesson from Gilmos. I will that's never awesome. forget that story. That's not, no. that's not a bad story, right? Okay, I'm sorry. But, I you know, uh, so listen, so, you know, what they brought to New Orleans, actually, Gil and John and everybody else who did that, I was actually lucky enough to know them, to work with them, and to have evolved in the theater world with them from the, mm -hmm. you know, late 1980s, in the 1980s all the way up into the 1990s into today. And so their form of theater and their form of communication always came this, from this very internal environmental aspect and one of the things that we've passed on to people who we worked with is that same format right so whether it's Kathy Randall's doing her work and she developed her stuff all by herself she 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 was always on fire um, but the theater groups that I see now today performing in the city have a lot of that same through line right so it's a legacy that's being passed down whether they're new from New Orleans to new f to New Orleans from Chicago which we have good groups or from New York there's a tremendous amount of theater professionals who've come down here from New York or whether it's from Los Angeles. The rise of the film community also brought a lot of actors to New Orleans, so we had this influx of, of actors who were just in New Orleans working, who got involved in the theater community, got involved in the live arts per performing community. And so, um, you know, it's always had ups and downs and, and, and a lot to do with funding, right? A lot oh, to do yeah. with availability of funds to put, mm -hmm. to put plays on and to put productions on and the availability of spaces, which was also a post-Katrina aspect that we had to deal with in the film community. And still and have to. And still have to. And you know, actually, what just struck me as you were talking that never occurred to me before, so we know that from the beginning of the 20th century, during the time of the really seminal cultural development in New Orleans, which I maintain changed the culture of the world, and nobody still fully appreciates that. But a lot of people had to leave New Orleans because mm -hmm. folks didn't, um, appreciate, acknowledge, and invest in the the cultural, the music, the musicians who wound up, you know, going upriver to Chicago, getting on a plane, going off to New York, and and many of them, and that still, of course, has been happening in in our generation mm -hmm. as well. So this reverse infusion of people from the outside, in a way, is a flip of that. That never occurred to me before, but it, yeah. it's it's really interesting that we we're, we're bringing people back. And, of course, we know that everybody who's been spending too much time in New York, like Winton and Harry, they'll be back. They always do because be it's back. the touchstone, right? And I think, you know, just as we were talking earlier, there is an energy and excitement here and a 
fire that was lit a long time ago that still burns. Sometimes it burns brighter than other times. But I think people have to come back here to get closer to the fire, right? You always have to come back here to get a little bit closer to the fire to make sure that it still burns within, the, within you. And that's been always my viewpoint of this, whether you fly off to New York or whether you go to Los Angeles or whether you tour the world internationally and, and you have great fame or and fortune. Or even closer to home like places like Nashville, it's Wherever it is. Yeah. I think you always have to get back here because this is where the fire started. So on the other hand, let's go back to this investment issue. And shockingly, uh, she's going to punish me for saying this, but this beautiful, this book, How to Rebuild a City, which, as I said, field guide for my work in progress, is one of the most impressive documents telling people how to deal with a disaster before, during, and after. And she didn't get paid a dime to do this. Well, it was a, honestly, it was a labor of love. Like I said, I think I probably got a few hundred dollars um, in some kind of grant money, and we tried to pay as many people as we could. But honestly, it was a labor of love. We did it because, I mean, think about all the stuff we did after Katrina, like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that we put in. Because money at the time was kind of the farthest thing from my mind. I just wanted to get this down. I wanted to make this document, and so did a lot of other people. Um, so, okay, and that's all well and good, but <laughs> here's my point. The musicians in this city mm-hmm. have been churning out this incredible cultural outpouring of work for a century and not getting recompense the way they should for it. And that's one of the reasons why, A, we have not been able to develop an entertainment infrastructure in this city that really supports creative pursuits and also, B, has stunted the economic growth of the city in general. We should have been a Los Angeles. We can still be. But you know what? I still don't have a sense, and, I, and, and maybe it's partially my failure because I run an organization that's trying to promote the creative economy, and I haven't gotten my message across to the business community and the political leaders in the city. And I looked at somebody's economic plan the other day, and I'm not going to say who, but I visited with that person and talked about the creative economy, and there was not a word about cultural creativity in this whole economic plan. So they still don't get it. Yeah, well, I mean, I was coming from a place where I was also, um, honestly, being able to do projects like this, I was coming from a place of privilege because I did have a job. I was teaching at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, and, um, and I was teaching creative writing, and I was doing my own writing on the side. And so... Um, so I, I mean, I consider myself. I don't know if Michelle does as well. Kind of part of the um, the creative economy in that we are, mm-hmm. um, we we are artists who teach artists and um, and are paid to do it and supported to do it. So I mean, I think I think maybe a project like this doesn't quite um, fit the. I don't know. They, yeah, they, it was a unique situation. You, well, yeah, it was yeah. a very unique situation. And, and everybody does. Uh, I mean, they, it, one of the things that they talk about a lot in terms of Houston and what went on in, 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 in that flood situation and in Florida is how people are helping each other. It's a big part of uh, the response to um, to a disaster and to any kind of really a challenge to your uh, way of life. But One of the uh, things I'm hoping, though, is that there have been such an influx of people, not only in the creative community, but the business community as well, and the technology community. And one of the things that I'm really praying for is that because they're coming in from an environment that may support the arts differently than New Orleanians have historically supported the arts, right? The business community has supported the arts. That there is a growth in the community of of people who are willing to kind of step in and say, hey, listen, I like dance, or I like ballet, 
or I like literature, or I like theater, or whatever it's going to be, and we're going to actually put a baseline of support together for that. And I am hoping that in the future, that's the kind of thing that happens to the city because of this influx of, of new lifeblood. In the Michael, I sure hope you're right, but I sure don't see the smoke signals for that yet. Well, I just don't. I mean, I, I you know, look at look, let, let's talk. In fact, let's turn our attention to the Faulkner Society and their event this weekend because they're looking to try to raise money for um, the Faulkner Society, which is, as I said, is pretty much the premier organization that supports the literary community here, yeah. and they're struggling. And I can tell you, I talk every day with arts organizations and artists who are struggling. Well, maybe the, you know, and maybe the, the companies that have started up here but with the new people who've come in from the city haven't really gotten to the point where they can do it yet, but I hope in a year, a few, two years, five years, ten years, that that'll be the case, that, that their companies, these new technology companies that are cropping up, and these kind of new businesses, and restaurateurs, and I mean, it seems like we've got a whole new – I woke up one day and realized, man, the city's changing. We've got a tremendous amount of influx of not only new economy but, you know, people from outside of the city who have come in. And our city is, is changing. We are, it's absolutely going to be evolving because of the, the you know, the And I hope that the folks who have been here all along get to, to benefit Part, from yes, that. Yes, that's the, that's the hope. Michelle, you were trying to make a point. Well, I just think that, you know, artists have to create. We have to create. It's it's not like a choice. So it it and and I guess that what I was trying to say um, about the investment, it was nice to be met with some investment once in a while for different artists at different points. But it's not a continual thing, you know. It's um it's like in influxes every so often, and artists have to work super hard, especially when the competition in the game is, 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 it's just so, there's so many people competing for the same money that's out there that's very little compared to other places like New York, for instance. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting the dilemma. We and the foundations that a lot of yeah. cities have. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Faulkner um, event coming up on Sunday and, and um, make sure that we get people there because, <laughs> yeah. you know, fundraisers turn out to be a big source of it. And, and the reason that Anne and Michael... Uh, are here is because they are part of the program. So what's the program? Well, um, so Rosemary James and Joe DeSalvo's life passion has been William Faulkner. And every year they put a fundraiser on to help promote some of the great programs that they do for the Faulkner Society, like the words and music. And so this is Happy Birthday, Mr. Faulkner. And this is the annual fundraiser for the Faulkner Society. They're going to have the incredibly talented and wonderful Ann Gisselson there talking about her latest book. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, uh, William Faulkner's last play. Uh, the, he died shortly after this was published in 1962 called Arrivers. And it's essentially... Oh, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. Man, I've been pronouncing that the Reavers the all Reavers, my life. Arrivers? Well, listen, yeah. so Gus... What does the word mean anyway? Thieves. And oh, it's essentially okay. about a couple of... I never did read that book. A couple of interesting characters. So he actually considered, William Faulkner considered this to be the grand opus, the greatest of all the greatest literature that he wrote. This was it. If you asked him, what's your best writing, he would have told you before he died the one I just finished. Really? I have to read it. Well, it's, it's, it, it is. It's a terrific read. It's very nostalgic, right? So he was an older man at the time he was writing this. And it was a look back book. It's a, it's told in the tradition of a elderly man telling his grandson about the about the life that he lived when he was the grandson's age, and it's uh, so it's got it's a nostalgic look back at his kind of fictional city of Jefferson, which was Oxford, Mississippi, where he was from. But it has uh, a pretty 
interesting ribald look at these four characters that are through lines throughout many of his books but um, talk about he's very candid about race and and the history of the city and and how these characters evolve and you know there's a character Ned who is uh, African American who's a, a mainstay in the city and Ned talks to the chief kind of big politico economic leader of the city and says we have the same last name because our great grandparents were together weren't mm -hmm. they and the mayor says oh yes they were and don't you tell a lot of people he's like I tell everybody that and so <laughs> it's this funny fantastic you know mm -hmm. interesting fun look at it it's a, it's 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 actually a comedy and it's, it's a little bit different than some of his other more dramatic um, more emotional writing it's actually a lighter version of uh, William Faulkner but we're going to do about a 20 to 25 minute stage reading of that, and it, it'll be fun. It'll that be sounds fast. Very cool. Yeah, it'll be it'll move quickly. Yeah, I like so. that, and it's timely too it because we much. are so much dealing with those issues. And Anne, what are you going to do? I am going to read um, briefly from my uh, new book called The Futilitarians, which came out about three weeks a month ago. So, futilitarians refers to people who are they sort of like existentialists who assume that. It's futile to do anything, but we're going to try anyway. Or yeah, that's kind of the basic. That's yeah. the basic premise of it. But um, in the book, it's a it's a nonfiction book, and it's about um, the existential crisis reading group that we formed back in 2012, and it's a year's worth of reading. So it's 12 chapters, one for each month, and each month kind of revolves around the whatever reading we did. Um, and we started the group in early January of 2012, and then literally the next week my father passed away. Ooh. And so the whole existential crisis reading group took on a certain urgency about it, and, um, mm -hmm. and so it's a year's worth of exploring all of those things through literature. Wow. That's really interesting, an interesting approach to do something that is both so kind of um, based in real time mm -hmm. as you're writing and with a group. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that that added perspective about your lives that you shared with each other that would not have emerged otherwise? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it was kind of this unexpected project that just fell into my lap, much like Michelle's, <laughs> Michelle's projects that kept falling into my lap unexpectedly that take you into places you never would have thought. Um, let's take a call uh, from um, uh, somebody who's... Hi, who's on the line? Thank you, Ms. Jean. This is Keith, and good evening to your guests. Y'all, yeah, Miss Jean, I thought it was the Reavers, too. You, they, the, the, your guest was called the Rivers? Yeah. I thought it was the Reavers <laughs> myself. Well, so listen, listen to y'all talk about the book, but did y'all see the TV movie? Yeah, Keith, you know, it's funny. That Steve was a great McQueen, Steve McQueen. Yes, I think Steve awesome McQueen played a hard hand. You're right. The old man had a grandson. He did. And they have the African-American actor. I can't think of this guy's name, but I know who he is. With those light brown tinted eyes, he was beautiful. He, he was good with he horses, was fantastic. but yep. this particular horse, this horse was crazy about sardines. Now what happened was the old man bought a new car. <laughs> and he knows they the took story. the new car and went off into the world with it. So when he stopped at some time, I'm not gonna say the other thing. When they went to that house, <laughs> don't give it away, house, you know, Don't that give it away. House. But when they came to that race. That horse race, that guy had did something to that horse with that sardine. And, you know, well, y'all know the story. But when he won the race and everything, that's when his grandfather popped up. So he got 
But just like you say, the experience of the world, so God, I guess when he walked up on his grandson, his grandson had got the world experience. Yeah, it's a terrific now, one story. one thing, y'all, Free Southern Theater, 12 years old back then, I can't see everybody, but when John O'Neill, I think Tom Den at the time, Julie Bug, I remember the people when they had the place on the Upper Night Ward, Lawset and Louisa. There were some beautiful days at that time. Uh, Denise Nicholas, these are the people I remember. Wow. Tom Den, Denise From when Nicholas, you were 12, wow. Uh, John O'Neill, Junie Bug, and there were other people. Now, if Columbia Salon was there, I didn't know it, but I remember those people. Selma and the River Niger, because we used to meet another guy when we were 12 and 13 at that time, and I can't exactly remember how, how long they was on that corner. When they moved, they moved to St. Bernard and Galliford, then they moved to Dryer Street. That was the last stop. Selma and the River Niger were the top place I remember, but we used to help them put up posters around time. God knows all these telephone posters around the city got so many checks and nailed them from putting up all these posters, <laughs> announcing plays and music events around the city. But those are the two plays that I really remember that Free Southern put on. Uh, Keith, I, I love the fact that these theatrical productions... Um, I, I guarantee you that the okay. guys who did it were okay. not getting, the again, the recompense for what they did had such an impact on your life, and that is such a proof of the importance oh, yeah. of the arts. Sister Jean, look, I remember La Petite. I remember uh, Anthony Beans, Ethiopia. He was around at the time. Yep. Now, when they say Southern, Southern Repertory... Back in the day, it was just called the repertory. Uh, you're you're a theater, you're a theater junkie. Station. You're a theater junkie. Free Southern gave a play. They didn't have enough room. They borrowed somebody's building. I don't know if it was repertory or the YMCA, but they canceled that play. They canceled that play. So for the city of New Orleans, they had those theaters around. Those were some beautiful days, y'all. And thank you for taking my call. I'm in it right here. Well, listen, you've been wonderful to listen to. You brought back so many terrific memories of Junebug Jones and the story circles, Keith. And uh, i got to tell you, that's really terrific. It really is an honor to, to John and uh, even John Dent and all the people who you mentioned who are just John wonderful, Dent, so, wonderful yeah. theater performers who, yeah. who greatly miss. Kenneth Raphael, you brought him back to my mind. And, so many others who've gone before us. Keith, thanks so much. I hope you're still listening for that call. I really, really appreciate it. And I can't tell you, um, it, it really just underscores what we're talking about today and the importance of the arts and in helping us shape our lives. Let I want to come can back. I, can I say this, too, that Keith actually brought up that was actually terrific? I didn't – so I didn't give the plot away, and he didn't either. But uh, so the story is – don't give it away. I'm not going <laughs> to give it away, but there's a fantastic – it's a journey story too, right? So it's told from a nostalgic point of view, like Keith said. The grandfather tells the grandson, and the grandson is the same age as the grandfather at the time. But it's a story about these three people who steal this car, and they go on this magnificent journey. And the journey leads them to this crazy kind of outcome that Keith was implying about a horse race and the saltines and this wonderful ending – that, Sounds a little uh, bit like Thelma and Louise. It's, it's got all of those great elements that probably were stolen from some great Faulkner works, too, along the way. But it is. It's a journey story that's got a bunch of interesting stops along I'm going to have to read it. I don't well, know why see. I haven't, because I've read a lot of Faulkner, actually. 
um, he had a, a lot of influence on me and, 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 in fact, was contributed to me coming to the city. And our fundraiser that we do for the Creative Alliance for New Orleans is called Valdez Artistes, and it's based on a production of a, car, a sort of takeoff, or send-up is the right mm-hmm. word, uh, <laughs> of carnival balls that Faulkner huh. produced in the French Quarter back in the Bohemian days of the 20s in, in the French Quarter. I, I don't want to speak to you know who got to go to what at the time. I'm sure that wasn't too cool. But right. back to Faulkner. We have to uh, – okay, so on Sunday at 1.45, it looks like – we start with the mint juleps. This is my favorite part. I do, even though I'm a reformed Yankee, I do, I did and do drink bourbon. So um, I really look forward to that part of the event. So we start with mint juleps and an open bar with food at 145. And then comes your yes, act, first right. of all, the, um, the rivers about these thieves and grandfathers and grandsons um, and Keith. And then um, that's followed by some Q&A, I see. And then, Anne, are you up next? It looks like it, yes. Yes, yeah. I'm up next. And then there's some uh, signing at the bookstore. This starts in the Cabildo, f- by the way, and then it looks like it ends up in the Faulkner Bookstore right there in Pirate's Alley, right behind the church, right, the, right off Jackson Square. The part of the Cabildo is the, is the fundraiser, and then um, the, the signing – at the bookstore is going to be free, and that's oh, from I'm glad to hear that to because it is it's not cheap. I mean, it, by 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 standards of um, fundraisers, it's not expensive, but it's a lot of money, and a lot of us can't go to it. So the tickets are $175 per person, or $300 per couples, or for patrons. But it's $75 per person for young folks under 40. Hey, I think that's discrimination. I'm nowhere near under 40, and I can't go. At the, to this uh, at that price, but this is it's impo- it's important that those of you out there who can afford this, you can hear from the conversation that we've been having this hour why it's so important to give to these organizations. I guarantee you that the um, Faulkner Society really has to struggle for their money to do these events and to honor the artists that they feature, and they help writers. Can somebody, one of you, talk to what the society actually does other than raise money at a fundraiser? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they do a lot of really great and important programming throughout the year. Um, for They do literacy projects for at-risk youth um, in partnership with the NEA, um, the National Endowment for the Arts, which also needs our, our support. Um, they've got oh a God. national program called the Big Read. Um, and the Faulkner Society has been really, really instrumental in getting books to hundreds, if not thousands, of students over the years with this program. The public school system. Yeah, and the public mm-hmm. school system. Um, they also um, partner with One Book, One New Orleans, um, and they choose a t- – I'm not sure who does the choosing of the title, but um, once again, they, they distribute the book and do programming around the chosen title every year. Um, and every year they have their uh, literary festival, and they bring writers and agents and editors – from all over the country to come and um, and do panels and seminars and readings and there have been so many writers, uh, local writers and national writers who have gotten their start through um, meeting those folks. That's so yeah, important. Yeah, that work, networking opportunity to uh, connect with potential publishers. Exactly, and through the competition um, that they do and the winners of the competition have gone on to you know win Pulitzers and. Um, and to have wonderful careers, and the Faulkner Society has been really, really instrumental in launching these literary careers. 
it's 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 a it's a great organization. It, it's a it's a great party. It really is. And so, as I said, uh, for those of you out there who um, are in that income group, I hope that you will consider um, enjoying it and coming to it. But for those who can't, let's talk about the book signing. Yeah, so the book signing is going to be at um, the uh, Faulkner House Books, which is on Pirate's Alley in the French Quarter. And that's actually where um, Faulkner kind of found his voice when he started writing in um, 1925. He wrote A Soldier's Pay there. And so it's really amazing. If you've never been down to the bookstore before, it's just it's a, a fabulous um, store and kind of legendary. And um, so... I mean, and, and, you know, just for those people who don't know where Pirate's Alley is, so this is one of the two streets that frame the St. Louis Cathedral and the Cabildo that's out there on Jackson Square. It's right behind it, mm-hmm. on, the, on the uptown side of the garden behind the church. Right. Go ahead. Yep. So needless to say, I am absolutely thrilled to be signing books there from 445 to about 545. What's your uh, most current book again? It's, it's the, the, the Futilitarians. Yeah, that's the one that's I'm right. going to be signing. Yep. Right. Fantastic. I love it. And um, Michelle, uh, what's your next uh, uh, important moment in the, before the, the public? Well, um, actually, I'm going to be opening a sculpture at for Prospect 4 in November, mid-November, November 17th. That'll be opening, and I'm very excited about it. It's um, Prayer Wheels for the Mississippi River. Wow. They're steel sculptures uh, with mosaic bases, and um, they have... I'm, I'm looking at the Mississippi River as the teacher to us about how we've engineered um, along its shores or how we've um, we've gone from the Wild River era to the slavery plantation era to the petrochemical corridor era. And the, the, the prayer wheels have our history written on its surface. So um, And the post-petrochemical era, which I believe we're entering, if not everywhere along the Mississippi and Louisiana, in some parts of the city, including our own St. Bernard right well, down the river. Well, you yep. know, it's funny you mention that because the piece is it's lit at night by solar power. So the prayer is towards a sustainable future, for me at least, yeah. And what about you, Michael? What's your next? I've got two terrific projects. I'm working with Jason Berry right now on a film project about uh, New Orleans' second lines called When the Saints Go Marching. That's a terrific project that he's been committed to and working on for years with Michael White. And then uh, I'm doing a television series. We're going to film Lolo Jones, who's uh, uh, one of our great American athletes and uh, who's one of the only human beings alive who's competed in both the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. She was one of the – she's the American record holder in the 100-meter hurdles who – fell at the last, uh, fell at the Olympic Games in the finals and then decided she wasn't finished, so she decided to go to the Winter Olympics and compete in the bobsled. And so, uh, yeah, it's terrific. So anyway, that's a fun project that I'm doing. Y'all are doing great things. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you for being willing to participate in a fundraiser for the Faulkner Society, and thank you very much for coming out. Six to seven, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know where you were going to be if you weren't here. but This is exactly where we wanted to be. (laughs) Well, I'm appreciative. Thanks so much. So this is Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, Real Talk for Real Times, and that's what we just had for about an hour, I think. Thank you very much, and see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Jean. (laughs) So you see what I mean? Nice job.